Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and other leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk. Get your copy at Amazon if you don't have it yet. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. My guest today is Hamish Stewart, the smooth and supple-voiced original lead singer and guitarist and bassist for Scotland's average white band, arguably the most ironically named group of all time. The six-member band became famous after its funky JBs-inspired primarily instrumental pick up the pieces was the U.S. pop Smash in 1974. That song emanated from AWB's self-titled second album, which topped the charts and also included a hot cover of the Isley Brothers' work to do and the supremely funky person to person. Other original band members included lead singer, bassist Alan Gorey, guitarist Ani McIntyre, sax players Molly Duncan and Roger Bohr, uh, Ball, rather, and drummer Robbie McIntosh. McIntosh tragically overdosed in 1974 and was replaced by Steve Ferroni. That original lineup disbanded in 1983, but AWB has recorded and performed since 1989 with a lineup featuring Gory, McIntyre, Ball up to 1996. With the rest of the guys, uh, or rather uh, those original AWB uh, members were part of the um, uh, return of the band in 89, and then the rest of the band at that time and ever since have been uh, hired hands. The other guys have long independently built up their resumes doing session work and live support for superstars like Aretha Franklin, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Tom Petty, Eric Clapton, and many others. That went on for more than three decades until recently when Stewart, Duncan, and Ferroni reunited to form a new group called the 360 Band. Their debut album has just been released. I'm delighted to report the new material has a decidedly AWB flair to it, and the group has played several gigs that include killer versions of Average White Band Chestnuts. That rich catalog is comprised of the 10 studio albums and double live album the band released during its 1973 to 1982 prime. During 74 to 78, AWB, AWB was among the best and best-selling funk R&B bands around. In addition to those tracks already cited, their classic songs include the funky TLC, Cut the Cake, one of my all-time favorite songs by anybody, Schoolboy Crush, <laughs> Grooving the Night Away, Going Home, I'm the One, The Message, and Your Love is a Miracle. Also, soulful nuggets like If I Ever Loses Heaven, Queen of My Soul, Let's Go around again and what you're going to do for me which was later a hit for Chaka Khan and they had it all covered with ballads as well like Cloudy and A Love of Your Own. The peak of AWB's power was the run of Arif Martin produced albums consisting of AWB, Cut the Cake, Soul Searching, Benny and Us and Warmer Communications all of which sold gold or platinum. I was fortunate enough to see the band perform during the late 1970s and early 80s and it was a sound to behold. 
So pardon me if I can barely contain my enthusiasm in welcoming Mr. James Hamish Stewart to Truth and Rhythm. Hamish, so glad to have you here. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I had a good day. I was uh, I had a, a session earlier on with some friends of mine. It was lovely. Yeah. It's good to be out there, you know, doing it. <laughs> yeah, still doing it. And we're, we're coming today person to person from the UK to uh, uh, yep. Charlotte, North Carolina, and the US. <laughs> so not so well, was sunny England today. It wasn't yesterday, but it is today. So, you know, I got to uh, share with you. I mentioned School Bike Crush being one of my all-time favorites. And, you know, when I first heard that, it was back in middle school. I was maybe in seventh grade, and I had a little, uh, almost a transistor radio that I would take to school, and we had a class before the regular classes would start called Homeroom. And it was in there that I first heard that song on the radio. And i never forget to this day, that's how much impact it had on me. And just hearing that rolling bass line and that groove and the bells and the vocal, I mean, it blew my mind. It was, uh, it was a bit special, that one. It's one, of those, it's one of those things, you know, it's just it's like so many other things that we did, it came from uh, a jam kind of thing. Uh, and we were, we were living in this house in, uh, in Long Island while we wrote the material for the Cut the Cake record. And we just finished dinner. And Steve and I were finished first, so we went through into the, the room that we had everything set up. And uh, just messing around, and Steve started to play that beat. And I, I kind of fumbled around trying to find something to play with it. So we had the bass and drums thing, the beginning of it. And then everybody started to filter through from dinner. And inside an hour, we pretty much had what it was going to be, you know, without lyrics, obviously. <laughs> that came a little later, but we had, we had the groove and the changes figured out pretty quickly it's just one of, it was a very like a lot of the stuff we did that came from sound checks and jams and things like that. it was very natural what was attempting to speed it up a little bit I mean you really laid back in that one. Oh yeah Steve set the you know he set the pace right there where it was going to be and if yeah you can't speed that up it's just got to be right back there for it to work Amazingly, when you did it live, I don't know if it was the case all the time, but on the double live album, it was even slightly slower than the uh, studio version. Yeah, I think that that's the way things tend to operate, I think, sometimes. I mean, nowadays people have like little portable metronomes and things like that and tend to go for the same tempo every night. But I think part of the live experience is that you feel it differently every night. And sometimes the slower tunes will just go way back there. And the up-tempo things may go at a faster pace. I think it's it's nice to just kind of let it, let it happen. Because sometimes when the tempo is not set exactly, you find other things to play. You play things slightly differently. And I, I think that freedom is a good thing to have. Yeah, that's one of the uh, things that frustrates me sometimes is that bands will kind of get a little overexcited, if you will, on stage. And sometimes they'll take the songs that have that real good groove 
and they'll play yeah. too fast and they'll lose some of that so yeah that's uh, it's definitely slower rather than faster i think than some of those grooves yeah yeah excellent well again so glad to have you here and uh if you're ready to roll i'm going to get into some questions for you sure sure good to go well where else should we start at the beginning we were talking a little bit before we came on online here and you and we uh talked about that metronome that you have to your side and that's from when you were a child and so i want to uh, go back way back and just if you could talk about how you first got into music how you got into the guitar and the bass and when you knew that you could be a singer well singing came first my my mother and father were both singers they met doing amateur opera and they sang in church choirs and stuff like that and my mother did recitals vocal and piano with the classical stuff for the bbc and stuff like that and so singing was kind of like breathing around the house you know and and uh, i learned my first the first thing i ever learned i was about seven my mother taught me a, a piece by handle called where you walk and that was the first song that I ever properly learned. And then I just singing was happening, and uh, I would just uh, I used to sing along with whatever was on the radio, you know, pop songs of the day, whatever. And then uh, and that went along until um, wasn't until the Beatles came along, and I suddenly realised that oh okay i could get a guitar and my friend had already had a guitar we could get a couple of guitars and we can learn these tunes and we can play together and sing together and then we started to make it into a group kind of thing and we'd go and play the local church hall youth club dances and things like that and it, that's really where where it began the guitar came after after the voice and then the bass came along a little a little later, I was always interested in it, listening to Motown and and what Paul McCartney was doing on bass with the Beatles, and uh, the bass interested me. And there was a particular moment. There's a, a Supremes track called "Love Is Here and Now You're Gone" that has a ridiculous bass line that just flies around all over the place. And I detuned my guitar to try and figure it out. And that's that was really when I became interested in the bass, but I didn't really play it until AWB that's when that kind of began uh, they said oh okay you can you can play on this one <laughs> <laughs> and, and you were born in, in in Scotland what what town in Glasgow uh -huh. yeah, I spent my youth in, in Glasgow and left when I was about 18 to move to London with the band I was with because you couldn't really, you couldn't make records there. There were no record companies, there were no studios. And uh, back in the early 60s to late 60s, even into the 70s, if you wanted to be in music, you had to come to London. So that was, in fact, that was where the, all the average white band were when we met up. We were all doing different things in London. We all, we, most of us knew each other from other things. Uh, and meeting up in London was was easy. <laughs> we were all there. So you, you mentioned about um, Motown and the Beatles. 
Were there any other particular musical influences on you, artists that were recording at the time um, that really had a, a profound effect on you or that you sort of looked up to? Otis Redding, Booker T and the MGs, all, all the stack stuff. James Brown, of course, was, you know, I mean, even early uh, stuff, I think he did, there's a live at the Apollo, which is, bef there's live at the Apollo volume two, which became my kind of musical Bible. I wanted to play Coldplay and There Was a Time, those, those kind of things. That groove really killed me. But James was, before that, it was almost like Louis Jordan kind of, kind of style. He, he was, he was like, before he invented the new groove, that was all interesting. And, and all the stuff that was coming from New Orleans, like Lee Dorsey and, and you know, all, all the stuff on that, that label that I can't remember the name of the label, Liberty, a lot of stuff on Liberty that, that seemed to come from New Orleans. And that was, that was it really. Um, R&B became playing, playing, starting to get out and playing the clubs with, with young bands. It, that was the music we were exposed to, and that was the music that I very slowly moved towards until around about 1970. I really started to realize that that was the kind of music I wanted to play. So you're already. <clears throat> leaning in that direction when you met the other guys that would be AWB, right? So um, I, I think they kind of had formed the other five and you came in last, right? So tell me how, how that came to be. Um, well, they, I'd heard um, a few months before they invited me uh, that these guys had got together and I thought, wow, that's going to be great. And I wanted to hear them, and I went to hear them play in a little club in London. And Robbie McIntosh was the the guy that I wanted to play with. Um, I'd met him when he was 16, and he was a great character, and he, he was a great player even then. And then he went off to Italy with the band he was with, the soul band, and they spent a couple of years there. He came back at 18 years old. He was the whole package. And I remember him coming back to Glasgow and playing, and everybody was knocked out. All the drummers in the place were going, "What? Who's this guy? What's this?" I, I you know, he uh, and uh, and he was a wonderful character, and we became sort of acquaintances, not not friends because we never saw each other that much. When he was in town, and he happened to be around, he was great fun to be around, and. Uh, when I heard that he'd hooked up with Alan who are, and Oni, who I already knew, who I'd played together with before, I thought, that's, that's got to be a great package. And when they asked me to join, it was like, it was a no-brainer. Yeah. yeah, sure. <laughs> I want to be part of this. They'd, they'd probably been together two or three months, I think, yeah, at that point. And, and they needed... And, and one, that, was, that was about 1972, or what, what year was that? It was 72. It was around right about June... May, June, 72, yeah. And so you guys got together, and what was, what what took place before you actually got a record out there? You were just uh, hitting the clubs a lot? What was going on? Yeah, we, we rehearsed a lot, and we were trying to develop the first few songs that we'd written, um, mainly uh, 
the first few demos were things that Alan had written, but then we started we started to write and we started to do things. There was an old Otis Redding tune that we did. And also very quickly, we got involved in um, going to America, coming, coming to America, <laughs> going to going to the states and getting to uh, getting to play out there. We uh, July August of seventy two, we were in L.A. and working, meeting guys like the guys from Little Feet and and uh, a couple, getting to know music like the Crusaders and. The Isley's brother, brother, brother album had just come out, and, and Still Bill was out. There were some great records around, and we uh, brought all that home in August, and we learned uh, work to do, which became part of our act before we had our, even had our first record. So it was it was in the mix way before the the White album. Uh, but we came back and very quickly we got a record deal in 73 because gigs were going incredibly well and we were getting great reviews. Uh, and then we did a concert support in Eric Clapton. It was like a sort of comeback concert for him that had been organized by Pete Townsend. We got great press from that and we got our first record deal from that. So we were into our first album by about the eight, middle or end of 73 things moved very quickly there's probably yeah probably middle of 73 i think and that was uh, show your hand that's the, the original title was show your hand right yeah and then we 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 toured the us on on that album uh, we opened a lot of shows for bb king which were which was great you know it was a and playing play, places like columbus and cleveland and and obviously LA just kind of getting around and the, the the big moment on that tour was when we played DC we played the Kennedy Center opening for BB and it was mainly a, a African-American audience and and they loved it and we came off stage that night we were so jazzed because we'd we'd hit something and uh, and we'd been embraced, you know, what we were doing had been embraced by that audience. So it was really, it was an important moment that for us. And then we came back here at the end of that tour and we started figuring out the next, the next thing. We toured the album there and, and started working towards writing more tunes and coming up with the next record. Hamish, how did the, um you know, American audiences then differ from the UK audiences that you performed in front of in terms of their reaction and their participation and so forth? Well, the American audiences were much more um, into what we were doing. Uh, British audiences were appreciative, but they were still a little, a little more reserved than the American audience. The American audience would just, yeah, if they were into it, you know, they'd make a lot of noise and they'd, and they'd make a noise during, you know, they'd kind of coach you on while uh, if you sang something or played something that they liked, you'd get a, a response during the song, much more so than, than here. 
in England at that point, they'd wait at the end of the song, they'd applaud and they'd cheer and it was great, you were going down well. But in America, it was constant and it was, it was great. It really, uh, it, it's that thing between the audience and, and the act that, that uh, it takes the whole thing higher. Because the audience, there's there's more coming to and fro all the, all the time, which is great. It just moves everything up a gear. <laughs> so even so even even then, were you, were you extending, extending the? Uh, the uh, I'm hearing uh, uh, Were you extending a lot of the songs that you played early on, or were you kind of playing them as you would on record? Uh, what was the live act like in that regard? Uh, certain things were extending a little bit like we had a on the first album we had a song called TLC that was a very simple groove um, that owed a bit to Sly Stone I think <laughs> and uh, that that could extend and try and get the, the audience involved that was probably our first kind of our first the first song that we played really that we'd written that we could get the audience directly involved in and that kind of grew as it went along with uh, things like Schoolboy Crush and Pick Up The Pieces, obviously, uh, and other person-to-person, um, -person, things like that. We could get that call and response thing happening with the audience. So it just it was a kind of natural thing that just developed over time. And we had a kind of loose, <clears throat> excuse me, a kind of loose setup where endings could change and things could change inside the song it was like playing kind of there was a, there was an improvisational thing in the groove that was that was always there that would allow us to come up with different things in like in the extended parts and roger and molly were great at that the two horns they would we'd extend the groove a little bit and they'd go off and for a second and have a little a little conversation and then they'd come back and start playing a new part and it was just great because things developed all the time and when they played a new part then somebody else would come up with something else so it was always it was kind of like jazz kind kind of it was like playing R&B with a jazz head you know in a way that anything could happen and it could go somewhere else endings could be different and new beginnings to songs were improvised you know like one night we were we love your own was going to be the next song up and uh instead of steve kicking it off molly just started to play some improvisational thing on sax and and slowly we joined in to that and then then the groove kicked off a couple of minutes later so things like that happened a lot it was very open. Yeah, that spontaneity was a key feature, um, and it really came across in the Double Live record you released later. You know, the funny thing about TLC for me is that when that I, I, I was unfamiliar with that track until the Person to Person Live record came out, and you had like the 14 minute version on there, and I yeah. was just like, what is this? That is a groove, you know? And because in America, you know, it wasn't until Pick Up the Pieces hit and the White Album became a big hit. And mm -hmm. I mean, even I, I was only in 
you know, junior high at the time, but I thought that that was the first album. I didn't realize there was one before it because it wasn't widely around in America, at least. Yeah, it didn't, and it, so it, I only found out later that's where TLC came from. Yes, yes. It, it was always part of our act because it was the beginning of, it was the beginning of where we were kind of headed groove-wise. Yeah, it was fun to play. And it was the first tune that I played bass on, on, on wholeheartedly. It was, it was uh, explore, exploring for me. Did that track get any airplay um, in the UK? Not that I know of, no. Yeah. Now, the first album didn't get much airplay at all. I mean, we got a little bit of a tickle because we were getting so much press and reviews of the gigs were so good, but uh, we didn't, we did, it was, re it was really, uh, things like Put It Where You Want It, we got some television. Uh, there was a show called The Old Grey Whistle Test that, that was uh, probably the best music show on television at that time, and maybe have five or six different acts playing one or two songs in the hour, and there'd be a disc jockey called uh, uh, Bob Harris who did interviews as well and introduced the acts, and that was where we got our first we didn't we didn't get a lot of radio but we did get some television exposure on that first album because people were talking about us now put it where you want it which was on the sugar hand album that yeah. was the crusaders track and i only knew it as an instrumental i didn't know it as a song with the lyrics so um well, that, that, that was a thing that, that first trip to la we picked up on the crusaders album and it was like wow great and then oh yeah oh this is a great tune uh and Alan wrote some lyrics, so that was it. Joe Sample approved, and uh, everybody was happy. <laughs> that was the beginning of a, an association with the Crusaders, which has lasted with the individuals. Like uh, Joe's no longer with us, but Sticks and, and uh, you know, and Wilton while he was here. We had a, we had a great uh, rapport with the Crusaders. They were, they were a great band and they really accepted us. They were a great band, another one of my favorites. A jazz band that really got funk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. But what a great, I mean, as well as a tenor player, what a great bass player he was. Yes. Um, and, and obviously, Pops Popwell, when he came into the picture, things changed a little bit, and he he had a great groove too. Yeah. And great trombone too in that band. Yeah. So Hamish, then um, in 1974, I mean, life really changed for you guys in a lot of different ways, mostly good, some not so good. But um, that white album i mean first you changed labels so tell me how that happened you went from mca to atlantic and then you put together you know basically an end-to-end -end really solid album with a song that became a pop sensation so how did those sessions come together and, and all that happened uh, well we had decided that we needed to record in america because we wanted to get a, an authentic r&b bass and drums sound because at that time here in England, they really didn't know how to do that. Uh, and, and we didn't know anybody that could do that for us. So we, we managed to get to LA uh, and uh, to a little studio down on, uh, it was on Vine somewhere called uh, Clover, Clover Recorders. And uh, 
and we started to work on that album there and we we were writing uh there's a lady called karen shearer who was the pr person at mca at the time who kindly donated her house up uh, off of franklin somewhere up franklin and coenga way up there and uh and uh near the hollywood <laughs> ball yeah 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 well not not too far yeah and we were uh we had blankets over the windows and stuff like that you know to soundproof it and we were living kind of on top of each other and just working all the time right in the tunes um and that became the template for the white album we recorded everything at clover and we took it into mca to artie mogul who was the head of the label at that time and he listened to the album and he said i don't know what to do with this guys sorry you you just take your tapes you're free to go you know um so we went and we were going, what are we going to do now so uh, somebody said well jerry wexler's staying in town at uh, this guy that we knew, Alan Pariser's house, was a friend of Jerry's, and uh, just headed straight over there with the album. And Wexler, like three weeks later, where we were in uh, Criteria in Miami, working with Wexler, Arif, and Tommy Dowd, who were there working there recording Aretha. And it was basically spend a couple of days in the studio with them to decide who was going to produce the album. So it happened, like everything, everything that happened for us happened very, very quickly. And that was a quick turnaround from being dropped to suddenly having a deal with Atlantic and Jerry Wexler going, this is really good. I like this. This is, I want this. And, uh, and really getting behind it. It was astonishing and wonderful and just, uh, just what we needed, what we wanted to be on Atlantic was home. So did you do a lot more work on the tracks after that or did it pretty much go as you had them? No, well, Wexler, Jerry uh, decided we're going to come, we're going to come to take you to take you to Miami. We decided who's going to produce. And then uh, after the two days we did that, went, went to New York and re-recorded the whole album um, with a reef. And uh, things some specifics benefited from that there was one track that got dumped and one track new track that we added uh, we came up with a new groove for pick up the pieces which without that it would never have been the hit that it was i'm sure the the original version on the clover sessions was kind of more on beat um and more of a kind of just a take on a JB's groove than, than uh, what we finally came up with. There was a lot of new groove stuff happening round about then. It was really inspiring and, and uh, it kind of took us to where that new version of Pick Up the Pieces ended up. And it was definitely, uh, it was definitely a landmark for us in, in terms of where we were going. Were, were you surprised it took off like it did? And what was it like hearing it everywhere? Yeah, yeah. I mean, totally. I mean, when when we were when we cut it, the night we cut the new version, we were so excited because we knew we we knew we achieved something, uh, which was true of most of the album. We knew we we 
we had something really good here, you know, that we'd worked on and honed and uh, we've picked up the pieces of it was like we really felt like we'd broken new ground and, and but you just do it innocently. You create something and you hope people are going to like it. And you've one of the songs on the new album with, with Steve and Molly, the 360 thing, is called Two Hit. And it's basically, the first verse is about that, that time when we were sitting in this room writing the songs. And it's basically, you don't know inside a year how much what you've done is going to change your life forever. And how 40 years or more later, some of that music is still going to be relevant to people. I mean, you don't you don't imagine in your wildest dreams that that can happen when you just, you know, you like you haven't got two two dollars to you know to make a fire with or whatever. Uh, that that things can change so radically and that music will last. It's astonishing. Yeah. Did, did you guys feel homesick or like fish out of water at all being in, in the States or was it? No, we, we were accepted immediately and we loved being in America. We loved being in LA. We loved being in New York. We loved hitting all the cities that we did. You know, it was, um, it was great. And we were exposed to so much more music all the time. Like here in England at the time, it was very hard to find I mean, we'd have to go to import record shops and, and all the rest of it to find new music, new R&B, like things like uh, artists like Willie Hutch and, and uh, getting, getting new, getting all the new records from America. There was only imports. It wasn't on radio, mainstream. And then being in America, and every town that you went to had a soul station and a jazz station. So you just like turn it on and leave it on. That was it. You were, it was all this great music and stuff that we hadn't heard before. We were just soaking all this stuff up. It was, it was great. It was a wonderful time. It's kind of um, interesting in a way. There's a phenomenon I'm just thinking about as we're talking, you know, to some extent of, uh, African-American or black American artists sometimes going overseas and getting better acceptance like Jimi Hendrix, for example, or other guys. Right. And then UK acts like, you know, Clapton or you guys who are doing more, um, you know, African-American rooted American music and, and more successful coming over here to do that. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, True. It's, a, it's a strange, it's a strange thing. Things go back and forth and get get kind of cross pollinated, and they, they turn into something else somehow. Um, it is an, a, it's a bit of a phenomenon. I guess the grass is greener. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I just want to mention that that white album um, it had pick up the pieces as we mentioned, person, yeah. uh, person, and work to do. All three of those tracks, I think, were in a succession which was pretty amazing. Um, it also had Got the Love, um, Keeping It to Myself. So, I mean, it was chock full of great songs. And yeah, it was solid material on that record, yeah. Now, Hamish, what did uh, Arif ended up, uh, is it Arif or Arif? Arif. Arif. 
Arif ended up producing several records with you guys. So what did he bring to your party? What did he bring to the mix? Um, a, a certain, well, to work with him was, was great with us because we admired the work he'd done. And he made it very easy. Um, well, particularly, uh, probably for me and Alan, being singers, the fact that he worked with like singers like Aretha and Donny Hathaway, and and really, he just kind of let you kind of be, and he knew how to get performances out of people. I think, and and just by just by letting it, he had, he was very mild mannered and and um really, really encouraging I, and, and uh, he didn't he didn't mess with things too much any suggestions that he made really just honed what was what else was going on there um so it was um <laughs> hello <laughs> she's home okay um that's clear coming home. Uh, yeah, uh, he just he, he just kind of he kind of let it be, and he, any suggestions that he made only enhanced what was going on. He got the best out of us. I don't know how he did that. There's a kind of sorcery to that that is unspoken. But he was a great guy and a real gentleman, and and socially. Uh, we were compatible as well, and and, and I remember one night, uh, not not long after we'd met, I think it was actually before we started making the record, we went round to his house and we had dinner, and then after dinner we started to play music, and he'd get out his archive, you know, things unreleased Donny Hathaway live recordings and stuff like that, you know, the kids in the candy store, we just. Yes, and then he got Dinah Washington records, and 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 we talked, and and we and we play they play old jazz records and old R and B records, and and we wound up going out going out of his house as the paper the morning paper was being delivered. We'd just been sitting listening to music all night. It was it was wonderful. It was a great start. Kindred spirit, yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. And yeah, and and and. I loved I loved working with him. I enjoyed working with him so much, and we continued to work after AWB. We still did quite a lot of stuff together, and, and it was great. Always, he's a lovely man, and I miss him. It's, in fact, as Steve and I, we were sitting at the back of the studio when when we cut the first track uh, for this new album. And well, this is just like the old days, you know. I wish Arif was here, yeah. and we, you know, we both said how much we we still miss him. Molly too, you know. He was a great, great guy. Was there anything that you uh, learned from him in terms of what you, how you take care of business in the studio? Um, yeah, it, uh, the way he worked on lead vocals, I learned a lot from, from him and, and uh, uh, he had this thing, we were doing like a vocal where we made, maybe got three takes and he said, now, now we construct the Mardinograph. And he'd take a sheet of paper and he'd like split it into three and then he'd go line by line and we'd put a take together from, from the vocal. 
uh, from the three vocals. And I've used that to this day uh, as a way of like two or three takes. That's the best you're going to get, I think. I, I hate going any further than that because I think you probably got it. If you know the song, you probably got it in the first three takes. So then compile. Then if there's anything that's missing, fill in the, fill in the blanks. But still, you know, there's the way to get a, a, something that really sounds like a performance if you don't get it in take one you know, or take two. Other things, just generally in the studio, the way he operated was, was great. Uh, try and try and do that, and 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 work uh, with the band in the studio. Trying to to still do things as live as possible. I think that's crucial. We got away from that. Technology allowed us to get away from that, but I think it's still the best way to make records. You get the. That you get the magic when everybody's playing in the room and they maybe don't all know the song completely, but they're going for things because they think that's what it takes and and you get the take that way, I think. You gotta have that chemistry. Chemistry spontaneity, I think. Yeah. 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 That's it. I noticed uh, Hamish looking at the liner notes for that particular album, some other names jumped out at me. Um, you had the Brecker brothers adding some horns, yeah. the great Brecker brothers, and you had uh, Ralph McDonald doing some percussion, yeah. um, and uh, Jimmy Douglas was doing some engineering, and he went on to do engineering and producing for a lot of people, including uh, Slave, which was a great funk act in the mid to late seventies. Yeah. yeah, they were. Around, they came around like roundabout. Um, I think after Cut the Kid, the I remember them being uh, Steve Harrington. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Barrington. Yeah, I remember Steve being around a lot around about that time. And Jimmy was always, if he wasn't engineering with us, he was doing. They had a great staff at Atlantic at that time. Hmm. Started Jimmy and Lou Han and and Gene Paul, who did most of our stuff, and Bobby Warner, all great people. So, did you feel um, what's the word I want? You know, the biggest hit, the huge hit, is almost an instrumental, and you're a singer. Was that okay with you? Yes. It's been, it's been my cross to bear, shall we say. You know, it's like, it is, it is tricky, because so many people just know us for that, you know. But the, 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 the dedicated AWB fans know, you know, they know all the other tunes, like If I, if I Ever Lose This Heaven and... Oh, yeah. uh, you know, love your own person to person, cloudy, all, all, all those things, all the oh, other slowly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is a funny one. It is a, it's something to. There's always something to overcome. <laughs> <laughs> so you're riding high. Um, you know, the world is your oyster all of a sudden, and then tragedy hit the band. Um, yeah. You know. How did that set you back, and how did you recover so quickly and get back into the studio? Well, it, it was—I um, mean, we were we were flying. We, we, the album was getting great reviews, and and the gigs had been incredible. We, everybody was—we were the toast of LA. You know, the New York gigs had been great. It was like you know, star-studded. LA thing and, and it was all happening then it just 
boom, went right to the depths. So we were, it was a very, very difficult time for everybody. And um, finally, we, we decided very quickly that we had to carry on. Uh, but it took a little while, some disheartening things, auditions were awful, you know. Uh, that's where Sticks, turned, Sticks Hooper turned up one night when we, we were just about to finish and he could see how down we were. And he said, he just said, let's play. So we played for about an hour with Sticks and everybody's lifted again. Mm. And we left that night without a drummer, but Sticks had pulled us back, you know. So it kind of went on, and we wanted Steve. That's, that's who we wanted. And it took a little while to get him because he was involved in some other things. And once we got him in place, we could start working on new music. And Atlantic were very, I think they made the right decision in pushing us into the studio uh, right away. Uh, really, we started uh, September, late September, Robbie died, and by February we were in the studio. The following February, with Steve, we've been working on the material through January, and I think that propelled us forward. It might have been much harder if we'd waited and they'd milked the white album with more singles or whatever, because we'd still have had to kind of just keep, uh, you know, treading water, as it were. But having to come up with a new album really drove us forward and it allowed Steve to bed in and come up with new grooves like Schoolboy Crush and things like that. So it just we just had to keep, we kept moving forward. And Cut the Cake, song for song, wasn't the best record, but it still had three or four gems in there, I think, that were mm -hmm. that ranked with some of the best stuff we ever did. But it was a record we had to make. And uh, well, certainly started off strongly with Cut the Cake and Schoolboy Crush right at the top of it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we had If I Ever Lose This Heaven and Cloudy in there as well. So we had, we, it was, there were some, th some things that stuck around for a long time, like the, the stuff from the White Album, you know, they're still around, you know. Uh, for many years, I was a disc jockey and uh, like 15 years and i did uh, events and i gotta tell you i've cut the cake i did a lot of weddings and cut the cake was the one that i used for all of those cake cuttings so hundreds of weddings probably in los angeles and oh, California yeah. had awb as their theme <laughs> it, it became ridiculous on the road <laughs> uh, the next two everywhere the promoter would bring a cake backstage <laughs> and the novelty wore off real quick. It became like a food fight every night. People were getting their faces stuffed in it. And, and security would be standing, and everyone would be standing around looking. Who are these crazy limeys? What are they doing? <laughs> it's, but it, yeah, it lasted. Well, what inspired that in the first place? Was it an actual cake or something else? Um, it came, Alan and... Uh, Robbie McIntosh had actually come up with the beginnings of that that groove, I think, and uh, just uh, and then we st we started to work on it. Cut the cake, I think it was it was Alan's lyric, so it just uh, that was it. Cut the cake, you know. 
I don't know. <laughs> you had a sweet tooth or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely for something. <laughs> <laughs>